When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we're talking how to be more target-focused with Steve Gould. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 228. Welcome to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We've got a great conversation coming up with Steve Gould on how to be more target-focused in all areas of life. But first, I do want to thank Patreon patrons and announce the latest Patreon giveaway winner, which happens to be Brian from Michigan. Brian will have his choice of a one-year subscription to Onyx Elite or the Keith Coyle Wing Shooting Instruction video series. I'm still waiting to hear back from Brian on which one he would prefer, but I'll let you all know on next week's episode what's up for grab next. And with that in mind, Patreon patrons are those of you out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show to keep these episodes and conversations coming your way. I really appreciate your support, and as a small thank you, those patrons are eligible for Patreon giveaways. They get some bonus content, and we send everybody some Birdshot podcast can coolers and stickers for their support as well. You can learn more and you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, everybody else out there listening, you can always leave the Birdshot podcast a rating, a review. You can subscribe to the show. You can follow the show. Whatever options you have in the podcast player that you are listening on, little things that just take a moment and also go a long way in helping the Birdshot podcast and the conversations we continue to bring you here. So thank you for considering that as well. 
All right. Hope you all had a great 4th of July. Maybe enjoyed some nice weather, celebrated the freedoms that we are all so fortunate to have if you live in the United States and hopefully elsewhere. I know many people are headed to the Great Northern Side-by-Side Shoot in Medford, Wisconsin this weekend. I unfortunately will not make it this year, but I'm hoping to pencil that into the calendar next year. I got to get there one of these years. Always here. It's a great time, and I'm sure everybody going this weekend is going to have a blast. So have fun out there at the Great Northern Side-by-Side Shoot this weekend. And I think that's all I got for you on this shortened holiday week. So we'll transition into our conversation today with Steve Gould of Target Focused Life. You may have come across his YouTube channel as it's quite popular in the shotgun space. And if you haven't yet, I hope you will after listening to this episode. I met Steve a couple months ago up at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. We came up to do a gun fitting with Del Whitman. We talked Upland Gun Company shotguns. He's got a couple of videos up on his channel, one featuring his gun fitting with Del Whitman and the other being an overview of Upland Gun Company and some of the shotgun models that we offer. So check those out and a whole lot more on Steve's YouTube channel, Target Focus Life. You'll learn a lot more about Steve in today's conversation, including how he got into shotguns and shooting, some of the crazy things he can do with a shotgun, and how he goes about living a target-focused life. So with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot Podcast, Steve Gould. off the phone i got some projects going on no kidding what what kind of native grasses and plants are you putting in all native to minnesota that's what i love um i don't like it i'm gonna put in landscaping yep so actually in my formal landscaping where i have mulch um and that will look real nice but then i got some more like wild plantings where i'll plant plugs and some places i'll plant seed and they'll look more like just a natural prairie setting as you roll up to our house and that just Something I am a sucker for natives. Just the beauty. I love the beauty of the prairie. I love the the birds. I love the the pollinators, the flowers. Yeah, I'm just I'm kind of a geek. I love it, man. I I I have not always. I guess I've always had an appreciation for the natural landscape around us. Um, and I will I will let you know we are rolling now. But I thought this was too good to to not include. So. But I, I've become very interested in, you know, Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever are great about highlighting the importance of pollinators. And uh, actually, last week I mentioned on the episode, I started a little pollinator garden here outside the Birdshot Podcast studio. And it's it's been really cool. I mean, native plants, you know, I've see, probably seen all these from time to time, but now I just have a, a, like a little different appreciation for it. And it's been really fun to sort of pay attention to the different blooms and, and seeing the monarch butterfly caterpillars on there. And the boys and I have been having fun watching that stuff. And it's just, it's just cool. So I'm kind of right there with you, nerding out a little bit on native prairie plants. Yeah, I don't admit that to everybody, but like I got a, a Wildflowers of Minnesota book and like I read <laughs> up on this stuff. I don't know scientific names, so I'm not that deep. Yeah. But yeah, I got about 2,500 plants sitting there ready to go that I'll have to get in the next couple of days. That's awesome. Well, I think uh, admitting that here on the Birdshot podcast will not get too many eye rolls because uh, folks that tend to listen to this show, I think, um, will have followed along in sort of my journey as I've kind of learned more about the native landscape and, and identifying plants. I mean, there, that has some parallels in, in upland bird hunting and sort of knowing the habitat and the cover that you're hunting. And the other thing that got me going around here is that we have some really nice green space around our house. And when I first moved in here, I just thought, Oh, it's cool. You know, we have woods in our backyard and 
but then the closer I looked and the more I learned, it's it's basically overgrown with buckthorn and and bird cherry and some other introduced species. And so now I've kind of kind of waging war against some of these exotic species, trying to let the nat- native landscape breathe through a little bit. Yeah, that's always interesting when you actually look at where these species come from that take over our landscape. A lot of them were introduced by man, and you see kind of this natural balance that that was in nature. But then when man starts to mess with it. Uh, and introduce new things that can really be devastating to, I mean, whether we're talking about animals or plant life, yep. both. Yeah, the downstream effects tend to uh, show up over time. Do you, would you recognize buckthorn? Do you know buckthorn at all? Uh, I, I think I have seen it. We don't have much around here. Okay. Um, but yeah. I'd like to get somebody on maybe to talk a little bit more about it because it's, my forester friends pointed it out to me and now, you know, there's a lot of it in my yard. So I see it all the time, but I actually, last week we were down at the Minnesota horse and hunt and I saw it down there. And I mean, what I know of it really is that, and and the reason I bring it up is I'm starting to see it in some of the wilder landscapes, like where I bird hunt in certain areas in Minnesota and Wisconsin. And it's, uh, it's really uh, I guess, and I'll throw this out there. If anybody listening has more information on it, uh, please share that with me because I would be curious. But it's really aggressive, and it—I mean—it grows like crazy. It spreads like crazy because the birds eat these berries, and then they sort of discard them. And it's just like it—it it can really take over a landscape. And when it comes out, it can really shade out everything else and just kind of take over an area. And I don't—I don't know what what really the long-term outlook is as far as buckthorn kind of bleeding out into the native forested landscapes around here but once it gets a hold it seems to be pretty hard to get rid of that i can tell you from just beating around my yard a little bit yeah and there's a whole bunch of invasive species that are like that right now i'm dealing with wild parsnip if you ha- don't know how to identify wild parsnip i would highly recommend it because this plant uh if you rub up against it get the oils on you it can create massive blisters that last for a long time and like leave big black marks in your skin for years, I guess. Um, it's some pretty nasty stuff. And even your dogs can get into this and carry the oils. And so we got a whole bunch here that I'm working on mowing and spraying and trying to take care of it before we got a bunch of blisters in our family. It's got a yellow flower, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. I saw, I had never heard of that, or at least was not aware until I was trout fishing, a few years ago, a former coworker of mine, Meadow Cowfield, um, at Rough Grouse Society, she was talking about it, and I think maybe identified some or pointed some out. But I was like, "What? What is it? Like some flower that I'm going to rub up against unknowingly and get massive blisters?" And I have yet to see much of it. I I should probably look it up, but I had I remember being very surprised at the way she described it, and it sounds like you've got some there. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of scary stuff. We had a guy from the USDA stop by to look at some of the farm egg land around here. He stopped by and just chatted with me and he sent me like uh, their, some of their data on it that had pictures. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that is nasty stuff. So like if you're walking through that in shorts, you're going to be hurting later that day or what's like, how bad is it? Well, I, I'm not 100% sure because I don't have firsthand experience, okay. but I can tell you that I am a slow learner at times <laughs> and I did go out to mow some of it and I was wearing shorts and I mysteriously have uh, like irritated dots all around my ankles. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, not very smart on my part. Uh, I, I don't know how common, if at all, it is up, up this way, but maybe I have unknowingly gotten into some as well, but 
That that just goes to show how much you and I, Steve, know about native plants and prairie. But we're trying. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's just a side hobby of mine. But uh, I like to have a little knowledge. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, we we jumped right into it, and that was a that was a fun way to kick things off. But Steve, let me back up a little bit and welcome you to the Birdshot Podcast. Appreciate you taking some time to join us today. You and I got to shoot some clays last week, and we've been talking. We've got an Upland Gun Company gun in the works for you. And I'm really excited about that, but. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit formally and tell us a little bit about what keeps you busy with target-focused life? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me, Nick. Um, I'm just a guy that uh, somehow stumbled into shooting guns for a living, not growing up hunting (laughs) or shooting, uh, but through a series of events, uh, started performing live entertainment shows with shotguns, and I, I performed live entertainment shows or called exhibitions over the last, I think this is year 14, wow. and uh, ran a couple of different YouTube channels. And currently I'm running the Target Focus Life YouTube channel. And we talk kind of all things shotgun, shotguns and wing shooting. At least that's a goal. It's been really heavy on shotgun reviews. So if you're looking into shotguns and you type in a random gun model and you're looking for more info, there's a good chance you'll come across one of our videos. But we're doing a lot more this summer with shooting instruction tutorials just helping people understand the concepts of shotgun shooting and elevate their game bring it to the next level and uh, i've been having a lot of fun with that that keeps me extremely busy we release a new video every thursday Mm. and and of course you know with video launches there's a whole lot more than just posting a video it's it's writing blog posts it's social media posts it's all that i'm gonna call it baloney that goes with it um (laughs) But yeah, so we do that. Uh, that keeps me pretty pretty darn busy between filming and getting these videos ready to launch. And then uh, one of the owners of the Alexandria Shooting Park, we just purchased that. Me and three other guys purchased that in November. So now we're running that. And that's the largest trap range in Minnesota. And it hosts the world's largest shooting event as far as participants, uh, which is the Minnesota High School Trap Shooting Championship that just took place a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, side green thumb native plant enthusiast and, uh, and dog dog trainer and and all that stuff so yeah i got a, got enough going on right now i guess to keep me busy busier than i'd like to be uh yeah that's the that's the the constant balancing act right and trying to do stuff like this and and uh manage family life and hobbies and all of that stuff but it's uh it's fun yeah well i mean you make a good point there i didn't even mention family yeah. i am married <laughs> uh have two kids a 13 year old girl 11 year old boy and you know just the the older they get the more and more i'm just cherishing the time that we have together and a lot of these things that i've pursued you know i no longer care to pursue them as much on my own because i really care about just the relationship and, and the family and you know i want to spend time with them and one major blessing that's been in my life recently is my 11 year old son started working on a few trick shots last year with his shotgun and he's really taken a liking to it he's picking it up fast uh maybe due to a a solid coach but uh he's now performing live exhibitions with me my 11 year old son uh, doing trick shots and shows and he's just got a great personality to get up there with confidence and and shoot in front of a live audience which i was 20 some years old when i started doing that i was terrified to death uh, so it's just been a lot of fun to spend time with my son in the backyard, shooting, practicing, working on his craft, and uh, it's been just an awesome bonding experience. Man, that is that is I was gonna that was gonna be my next question as far as the interest level 
of shotguns and shooting with with the kiddos but that's amazing i i can't imagine the sort of confidence and charisma if you will that an 11 year old might be developing as you say getting up in front of a live audience and do it that's uh that's a pretty valuable experience for for him down the road yeah and he's got he's got a great personality for it i mean my son is he does piano so he's doing piano recitals he does uh, he's done some acting he's on stage he's saying worship at church and so he's getting a plethora of experiences on stage in front of people and we just want to keep encouraging him with that um and he he likes to shoot he likes to do a little hunting with me yep. uh, my daughter however uh I, I don't know what happened she she doesn't <laughs> really care to hunt she'll shoot her bow she's happy to shoot her bow but doesn't really care to shoot guns and doesn't really care to hunt. In her early days, I gave her a lot of exposure. Maybe I burned her out. Maybe I was too, uh, uh, I don't eager. know, too much, yeah, too eager. Um, or, or, you know, as she's developed, she just loves animals. And she says, you know, I don't, I don't care if you hunt. I, I understand it. I just, I don't want to go out there and hunt sure. animals. And, and I respect that, you know, and I always, I'm careful, Nick, to not push my passions mm-hmm. and my interest on my kids. Because a lot of times you see that where the parent is happy to do things with their kids when it's what the parent likes, but it's so much harder to get at our kids level. It's like, Hey, what are your interests? What are your passions? And, and how can I be excited to do these things that I'm not necessarily passionate about with you? And I think that means a lot to the kids. Yeah. Yep. Certainly that is something that I've, my awareness level has, has definitely increased over the last few years with, with the, ages of my two boys and I'm, I'm working on it, you know, showing them the things that I like to do, but, but trying to really tune into the things that they like. And I mean, if, if, if a five-year-old knows what he wants to do, my, my son is going to be working in construction because he is all about construction vehicles and trucks. And he could tell you more about it than I ever could, which is really funny. <laughs> That's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. I imagine a lot of little boys like trucks, but man, he seems to take it to a, to a different level, but he's, uh, like you, I was going to ask, he's, I I've exposed him to different kinds of hunting and we've, we've had some, we've had some really good times, uh, in the field together and, and hopefully there will be, there will be more to come, but it is an interesting, you know, how do you approach exposing them to things, but not forcing them and and pushing them to do things. Do do you have a way of like, kind of like going about introducing your kids to things? Like, do you sign them up for something or, or do you have any, strategy around that uh i'll tell you when i'm about 65 the best strategies <laughs> but you know you're kind of in the same boat as me it's yeah. sort of learn as you go but uh if it's something i'm passionate about i want to do it gently and i want to just take baby steps with it yeah um it's really easy for me to get overly excited and try to push too much down their throat i gotta be careful with that i coach my son's basketball i help him with football you know i help him with different sports and and i can push too hard and i just got to be very careful and and don't get me wrong. I think kids need to be pushed to some extent. Yeah. I, I think especially in this day and age, kids need to be forced to get outside. If they have a natural tendency, which most kids do, they'll take path of least resistance. They'll sit on tablets and watch TV if you let them all day long. And so we as parents do need to be proactive in getting our kids out there, getting them experiences, putting them in circumstances that may, they maybe wouldn't choose for themselves because ultimately that's going to lead to better overall development of our kids. Um, but as far as grand strategies, I mean, patience, that's the one I got to learn. Just, yeah. just be patient, take yeah. it slow. Um, but I know when it comes to shooting, I never want to give them more than what they can handle. So I'm always reading body language. I never want to hand them a gun. That's going to give them a bad experience, uh, kick recoil too much, mm. uh, anything scary like that, that might just instantly say, no, this is not good. I don't like this. 
that's kind of how I approach it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not nodding my head a lot because those are not to say that I've got it all figured out, but those are definitely things that are, that are on my, on my mind. So, uh, that's good stuff, but let's circle back to Steve a little bit. And you kind of mentioned it briefly there, how you found your way into shotguns and shooting. You didn't grow up hunting. You grew up in Minnesota, right? Yeah. Yep. I'm from central Minnesota, born and raised. All right, so you were you were probably had some exposure to to the outdoors, and you you were had some awareness of hunting and fishing. But what was it that that led you into the world of shotgun shooting, Steve? Yeah, well, like you said, I mean, it's really hard to grow up in rural Minnesota and not have some exposure to shooting or hunting. And and I had some exposures, yeah. but my parents weren't shooters or hunters. Um, you know, my close friends necess- weren't necessarily other than maybe just during deer season they'd go out with their family and. And so I, there was no community around it for me to really grab a hold of. And I guess when I was young, I got really focused on me and just doing things that brought instant pleasure. And I was really living a self-centered, uh, driven life, to be honest with you. And, and so I wanted to go chase girls and, and spend all my money on clothes and go to the movies and just go to <laughs> sports games. And, and uh, hunting was really not on the list at all or shooting. Uh, and, but that really changed, Nick, to be honest with you, when I was in college, uh, ended up at a church service, uh, had some life changing events there that changed my whole worldview, my whole perspective. And instantly uh, there was just a difference. And I all of a sudden saw creation, the outdoors and was drawn to it. Mm. And all of a sudden I started I was going to school at North Dakota State University and I started duck hunting out in North Dakota and just kind of fell in love with being outdoors and these sunrises over these marshes and, yeah. and ide- identifying ducks and just this, this respect for the diversity of nature, you know, learning all the different duck species and, and just, it, w- it was a different guy out there. And so that's kind of how I got introduced into hunting. And then I started taking it up myself, uh, took out a, a Gander Mountain credit card, racked up a bunch of debt, buying a bunch of new hunting gear. Uh, I would not advise that necessarily <laughs> to anybody, but that's one of those poor decisions you might make as a college student, not sure. realizing that this is going to come back and bite me and cost a lot more than it should. Um, but then what happened, Nick, is in the summer when there's nothing to really hunt, my brother and I started shooting clays. And I got to mention, my brother grew up, he had an uncle that exposed him. It was our uncle, but he exposed my brother to shooting and hunting at a young age. My brother just was all about it you know we talked mm. about how these kids have different personalities and are drawn to different things Aaron from a young age was drawn to it and he was self-driven like he saved his own money bought his own stuff like I said we didn't have a dad or a mom that was leading us in this um so now Aaron and I have something in common that's my brother Aaron yeah and we started shooting clays in the summertime just for fun and then we started doing just a few kind of trick shots had kind of seen a few things online you know shooting the gun from the hip or over the head whatever trying to throw multiple clays at a time. Uh, but it, what really, really changed was a moment of inspiration it was in spring of 2009. We were at the Rice Creek Gun Fair in Little Falls, Minnesota. And this man named Tom Knapp was performing a live exhibition. I had never seen one before, had no idea what to expect. But watching this exhibition, the way this 60 plus year old man was entertaining young to old men and women, the whole crowd. He wasn't just doing trick shooting. He was entertaining. He had stories, he had skits. Mm. And it was just this experience that was all of a sudden like, oh my goodness, this is what I'm called to do like this. And my brother had the same experience. Yeah. Trick shooting. That's what we're called to do. Uh, You know, am I good at shooting? No, not really. Am I good at public speaking? 
Uh, nope, terrified of it and was voted most nervous public speaker in my college speaking course. <laughs> Did I have a lot of extra money to buy shells? Nope, really didn't have anything that would say, yeah, this makes logical sense. But when you get that, that deep down inside feeling that this is what I'm meant to do, and you start taking steps of faith and just working towards it with that faith and vision that that will become a reality, big things can happen, man. Man, that is cool. I, I uh, you had mentioned to me the Tom Napster. I never got to. I, unfortunately, I never saw him in person like you did. I can only imagine what it would be. But I had you when you mentioned that last week. It brought up memories of me. I've seen the little snippets on whatever it was, ESPN Outdoors, or you know, he was on all the networks and and just watching him throw up nine clays or whatever and smash him. I mean, that was always as a as a bird young bird hunter, and uh, that was sort of. I, n- I never said I need to go out and start trick shooting, but I always had an appreciation for it. You took it to another level, Steve. Yeah, I was too naive to know better. You know, like yeah. logically thinking, they're like, no, that doesn't make any sense. Let's uh, let's let's go be an accountant or something. Um, <laughs> but the dr- the dream was real, and it was real in our minds. And that's that's a big part to just getting started. So that was 2009. I mean, I, I my first thought is to say it's not that long ago, but I guess I guess it's a while ago. That's when I was graduating from college, which is which is kind of funny. But I mean, a lot has happened since. But what what was step number one after you saw that and had that inspiration? Was it what did the action steps look like from there for you and your brother? Yeah, well, I've actually thought a lot about that over the years, and and a few years ago, I was inspired to start the brand target focused life yeah. because this, this story has been so impactful to me to see what is possible when we take the right steps and have the right beliefs and how much more we're capable of than what we often think, but we limit ourselves in our own minds. So that's kind of where target focused life came from. And so as part of those principles, the number one thing that I talk to people about as I've looked at my own story and reflect on how to make things like this happen is number one, having a clear vision. Like, what does the future look like? How clear can you make it? What are the finer details? Make that so real in your mind that you know where you're going and this destiny is inevitable that you're you're eager to take steps towards it, mm. right? You can't have a half-hearted dream that is hard to reach and expect to reach it if you can't make it real in your mind. And and in no way do I guarantee success in anything that I do, but I know if I'm going to have success, it has to start there. And then I, I'm okay with the journey too, Nick, because ultimately, if this is what I felt called to do and I would have went out and put my best effort forward and then it didn't come to fruition, I know I would have learned so much along the way that's going to help me in the next journey. Mm. Yeah. So that clear that clear vision is is kind of where I start. And then from there, I, I say it's focus, right? In today's day, there are so many things to distract us. And, and one, one quote is, you can do anything you want, but you can't do everything. So when you have this v- vision and dream, we need to realize that that is one of our top priorities. And of course, we're all going to have a mix of priorities and, and different obligations in our life uh, that we need to make sure are, are forefront. Because then we need to eliminate distractions, things that are actually, they might be good things, but they might be keeping us from where we truly called to, are called to go. Mm-hmm. So we need to eliminate distractions and then put our focus on that vision. Because, and this comes from Tony Robbins, as far as I know, he says, where your focus goes, your energy flows. And I just love that quote because it, yeah. it, it's true in life, but it's also true 
when you shoot a shotgun. I tell people that all the time. You got to focus on that clay. You need to be target focused, not focused on your bead, not looking at your gun, not looking at your hands, because where your energy go or where your focus goes, your energy flows, your hands and everything will work together to where you're focused. And that's, from my opinion, how we pursue vision and dreams as well. We have to have that clear vision, the focus, and we will start as more we focus on it, energy will start to go that way in our life. I love that. I had heard you say that before, and I maybe had heard Tony Robbins. I didn't. I wasn't sure, but uh, I, I love the parallel there for for life and shotguns. It's uh, it's perfect for you to use. There's there's no doubt. <laughs> well, I try to say that saying at least once a day. It seems like it comes out, but yeah. that's exactly what target focused life is. Is like the parallels between what does it take to hit a flying clay or a flying bird out of the air. You know, that's being target focused. But then, what are those same principles that we can apply to life? to live on target in our lives as well. Yeah. Very cool. I, I gotta be honest when, when I, when Jerry first, our buddy, our mutual friend, Jerry Havel, he first mentioned you to me that you were coming up to check out the guns and do a gun fitting with Dell Whitman. He like, you know, the first thing that came to his mind was, you know, he's a trick shooter and he does a bunch of cool stuff. And so I kind of just sort of, I don't pigeonholes, maybe the wrong word, but that's kind of where I had you in my mind. But as I've gotten to know you more and checked out more of the target focus life, I mean, I, for me, I love sort of the, and I'm not good at it. I don't have all the answers and it's in an area I'm trying to improve in all the time. That is that focus, uh, minimizing distractions, setting goals, achieving them, like all of that stuff I'm really interested in because I'm not that good at it, but I have a, I have a newfound appreciation for your whole approach, Steve, and kind of everything that you do. So you got a new fan out there. Well, Hey, I appreciate that, Nick. And that's a pretty common thing. Like exhibition shootings where I got my start in the gun world. That's kind of, it's the, for lack of better words, the sexy way to introduce me, right? He's a trick shooter versus sure. he's a guy that talks about guns and living target focus. Like, <laughs> what does that mean? Nobody knows. Yeah. But uh, I am equally as passionate and probably more so passionate about talking about living a target focused life than I am talking about guns and hunting, to be honest with you. And, and I haven't even touched on it hardly on my channel, in my content at all. But I mean, that's something behind the heart of what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's uh it's multifaceted, and there's there's a lot of directions that you can take it, which is really cool. But to your point, I I do have your I got your YouTube page up in front of me, and that's one thing I was gonna gonna paint out is that for folks looking for information on shotguns and and reviews, and that's you do a ton of those, so it's a it's a great resource for that for folks to get get eyes on and and a little hands on review from somebody for lots of different kinds of shotguns. Um, including uh, a couple of videos on Upland Gun Company, which I will certainly shamelessly plug here on this podcast. But how was your uh, how was your gun fitting experience with Dell Whitman? Yeah, I mean it was awesome. I take every opportunity I can to learn from people that know more than I do, and even if I don't think that they know more than I do, I want to listen and learn. Right. Uh, someone that modeled that well for me was Jerry Mitchell. Like he's a renowned shooter. He's accomplished a lot. But he said, the moment you stop learning is the moment you stop growing. Mm. And so always being open to what other people have to say, not approaching things like you have it figured out. You have the one way. Um, I mean, we want to speak with confidence, but be humble enough to, to kind of go, hey, I, I don't have everything figured out. So I, I can learn. I can grow. And and Dell is definitely a wealth of knowledge. I really appreciated the way he broke everything down and was so thorough and detailed. Um, and, and I'm so excited after that gun fitting, Nick, that as I go through these reviews, I'm just, it's brought to the forefront of my mind. I'll talk about stock dimensions, but I never really have broken down for the viewers that might not know, like, what does all this mean? Mm -hmm. And how should you 
take this into account before purchasing this gun. And so I'm going to start preaching and for everybody or encouraging them. I, I shouldn't say preaching, but encouraging them to get a custom fitting uh, or, or fit for a shotgun, even if they're not getting a custom gun. Why? Right. Well, because if you're like me and you're 15 or right around a 15 inch length of pole and you're looking at a gun that is not anywhere close to that. Well, before you buy it, you better know, can I adapt this gun to make it fit me? Uh, if I'm, uh, if I need a really high comb, is this gun capable of meeting my dimensions? It, it, out of the box, can it be adjusted or what can be done? Knowing that before you make a purchase, because it can be a great gun, but if it doesn't fit you well, it's never going to be as enjoyable mm -hmm. to shoot and you'll probably end up missing a lot more than you would otherwise. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side -side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Yep, without a doubt. And that's, I would echo that a lot. I mean, folks have heard, have heard it here on this show a number of times. We've interviewed Dell a bunch. But I would say one of the biggest takeaways I got from working with, with Dell is really just, and this is what I love about him. And your video did a great job of capturing this as just how much he explains the process and really ultimately wants the the person going through the fitting to walk away with an understanding of how sort of their mount and, and movement is in relation to the gun. And then you can take that knowledge, just like you're saying, Steve, and apply it to any gun. It doesn't have to be a custom gun that you're ordering or something, but understanding how your head positioning on the stock is altered by the stock position and and how that affects your shooting that's that's like the biggest thing you could take away from from a gun fitting and that alone is is really worth the investment for something that if you're really passionate about hunting and or shooting and just want to want to understand it better and, and be better that's where it becomes a really good investment for somebody yeah you know and i don't know what bell charges and it, it doesn't rightly matter i mean if it's a few hundred bucks 300 bucks 400 bucks i don't i don't really care it's worth doing it at least once right just to have that information and then every gun purchase you make from there on, you're more educated on what you should be looking for in a shotgun that's going to be at least close to fitting you. I don't believe it has to be perfect. In yeah. ideal world, it is perfect, but you got to get close. Yep. And like the, the where I've settled on is like, you know, I think there's a tendency to, because we, we do take stock dimensions in these very precise measurements, like it kind of sound like it seems like a precise thing, but 
really there's some fundamental concepts that you need to understand about the shotgun to make sure that you're not like fighting the gun or the gun is working against you and your physical stature or your mount. Uh, but we, we're not robots. We mount the gun a little bit different each time, especially in like wild bird hunting situations. So it, it isn't this, this exact scientific measurement that you need, but it's gotta be, it's gotta be working with you and not against you. It's kind of how I think about it these days. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So I kind of, I jumped the gun there a little bit with gun fitting. I did want to ask you after the, the big inspiration of sort of thinking you wanted to dabble in, well, I shouldn't say dabble, go all in to trick shooting, which you clearly did. What was the wing shooting? You, you mentioned kind of get it started waterfowl hunting in North Dakota, but then like, what does your, what did your education and or instruction in shotguns and shooting look like from there? Was it just a total trial and error process? You and your brother going out and shooting a bunch of targets and playing around or like, how did your, how did you evolve in, in shotgun shooting? Yeah, well, we were young, we were naive, and we took the long road of doing it ourselves and learning ourselves. Now, not like you can go out there and get a lot of uh, trick shooting instruction. There's not like people that teach this type of stuff. Right. There was only a tr- few trick shooters in the country, but even with just normal clay or wing shooting, it was basically self-taught. And then over time, learning from others eventually um, and, and and picking up the speed acceleration of, of learning. But I mean... The hard way to go about it is just trial and error. And if you really want to grow quickly, uh, learning from others that have been there before you and, and have knowledge to share uh, is a much better way to do it, if you ask me now. Yeah. So when it comes to trick shooting, I mean, I think like maybe that maybe people sort of conjure up visions in their mind of of somebody shooting from the hip or shooting behind their back. And I'm sure you got a bunch of videos that, that would show this, but like what other, what, what sort of constitutes trick shooting? What are other things you do? And you still do live, live shows and, and seminars and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. I still do live shows. Uh, my brother's out flying airplanes now. And so we're not doing shows together. Um, we did for about 13 years and I'm very grateful for that time. But uh, how would you define trick shooting? I would boil it down to anything that is highly unconventional yeah. and or incredibly difficult and has a entertainment aspect to it. And so a live show, I'm, I'm talking the whole time through as I'm doing trick shots. I try to tell jokes. Sometimes they're funny. Sometimes they're not. I try <laughs> to be inspiring by sharing just a little bit of my story and how much more is possible when we hit those three elements of vision, focus, and trigger pull, which is the taking the action. Mm. And um, so it's a mix of those things. But for example, right, you can think of a million ways to throw a clay um, uh, and shoot a clay from the hip, behind the back, over the head, upside down, over the shoulder, while doing the limbo, while doing push-ups. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But then you can, uh, if you watch Ghoul Brother videos over the years, we incorporated things outside of shotguns, fire uh, firearms, rifles, pistols, crossbows, bows, and we've done all sorts of crazy stuff, Mm. uh, crazy and safe at the same time uh, over the years. So, for example, one of the shots that stands out is we kind of said we want to set the record for breaking the longest shot on a clay. So we first did that with a shotgun. I think we originally did it at 160 yards. I've since broke that at 180 yards. Um, but then it's like, okay, well, but we're reaching the outer limits of shooting clays, right? 180 yards. I was using TSS, federal TSS, okay. tungsten, tungsten turkey loads to get that far out. Yeah. 
but you're reaching the outer limits, right? Your pattern is so huge at that point, it's blown apart um, that you're lucky if you can hit the clay a little bit. But how could we go further? Well, why limit ourselves to shotguns? What if we used a rifle? And so we set out and we, we set the record for the longest shot on a flying clay. These are self-proclaimed records, by the way, Nick. Okay. Like, we're not, we, don't go to, we don't go to Guinness and try to get them certified. It's just that we have never seen this. We searched the internet. It doesn't appear that anyone's done this. So we're going to call it a record just so maybe it gets five, five more clicks. I don't know. Well, if anybody from um, Guinness is listening, get in touch with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, so we, we set the record at, I think we first did 200, then we did 300, then we did 400, then we did 500, then we did 600. I think six, six or 700. I don't even remember the last one we did. Yard a flying shooting a, a clay fly. target at 600. How the heck are you doing this, Steve? Well, okay. So people will, some naysayers will say this. They'll say, yeah, but how many shots did you take? Sure. And it's like, well, more than one. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Like if we went out there and hit it on one shot, it'd be like, oh, that was easy. Anyone could do that. But part of the pride that I take in some of these shots is you created the vision to shoot a clay at 600 yards. It's not going to be easy. You're not going to hit it right away. But are you determined enough to stick with it mm. when it sucks, when it's gotten long, when it's gotten hot, when you're not hitting it? And can you be persistent enough to keep pulling that trigger until you can make it happen? So it, for me, it's not about, oh, I got it in three shots. I'm, I'm amazing. It's I was dedicated enough to stay out there for hours, being close hundreds of times until it happened. Yeah. Because then that makes that that moment all that more exciting. There's a triumph. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't let this shot beat me, but I eventually got it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, getting to know you a bit more, that, that makes total sense. And that, that has a lot more uh, parallels as far as what you do but i i still just i can't is there a video of this yeah uh <laughs> what it's called i don't know okay. as we continue to talk i could probably look it up yeah well i'll we'll find it and i'll i'll make sure there's a link in the show notes but i will definitely be linking up your your channels anyways but how like what is the time delay of like throwing a clay that far and shooting like how does it even work as much as you can describe it here on a audio podcast <laughs> Well, yeah, that's the other thing that people don't realize is like to get these shots, you have to get into a mindset of like, how can this be accomplished without it taking days? Yeah. Right. So you got to think through elements of setup. How do we set this up? How do we minimize variables? Pull off an incredibly difficult shot. Now you're throwing a clay in there. The clay never takes the same exact path. Right. It is affecting it differently. You know, by the time you see the clay and you have to pull that trigger, like the clay is going to be in a different spot. So, I mean, how are you leading the clay? Well, you have to have a process and a methodology for that because mm-hmm. I'm not going to just guess, you know, oh, I need six foot of lead at 700 yards and I'll, let me just aim at the air. No, that's not how I'm going to get it. I'm going to, uh, I don't want to give away the secret because I don't want someone to break it, but I'm going to do it <laughs> because I don't, I, don't, I don't really care. If you do it, more power to you. It's going to be awesome. I'll celebrate you. But so you go out at, uh, and you throw a clay, see how much it drops in that distance and you kind of set your dope for that drop. So that way, when the clay comes out, I put my crosshairs on it and we figure out kind of the difference between how much the clay is going to drop, what our bullet's going to drop, kind of do some math. And it's a little bit of redneck math. You're, you're kind of taking some educated guesses, mm. but I basically want to put, put my crosshairs on it and then shoot and have my bullet match it as it drops. Man, that what does a clay even look like at 600 yards? I can't even, I can't even imagine, Steve. You've got my head Tiny. spinning. <laughs> <laughs> 
it looks tiny and it's moving. <laughs> uh, but I tell you what, it's super cool when you're watching on the spotting scope. So Aaron's watching on the spotting scope and he can see my vapor trail and he's trying to call my shot so I can make adjustments, you know, and, and it's hard to tell depth, but you can tell left to right and up and down kind of how, where you were in the clay. And so many times he's like, oh, that was so close. Oh, you were just a few inches off. Oh, that was so close. And you're like, ah, oh, but close doesn't count. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it is so fun. What kind of rifle were you shooting at that distance? That was a 6.5 Creedmoor, if memory mm. serves me right. You know, I made a lot of videos, and sometimes I have to go back and sure, revisit sure. to remember what the details were. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's uh, that's amazing. I'll have to check that out. But let's back up a little bit to sort of the longer-distance clay targets, because I had some questions there before you mentioned 600 yards and and blew my head up. But uh, we'll, we'll eventually maybe bring this back around to bird hunting a little bit, but when you're shooting clays at, you know, a hundred yards, you said you, you use TSS for 180 yards. What's kind of, what's going into that shot? Is it, is it really just like, in a, are these straight crossing targets? Are you throwing them away? And like, how are you breaking down that shot and figuring out how to, how to make that hit? So again, it's a little redneck science. Yeah. So what we've got to do is we've got to say, Hey, what choke construction is going to work? Redneck science. We put a bunch of balloons out on stakes. We test some different because you can't pattern, you can't use a patterning board at 180 yards. Mm. So we put up a bunch of balloons, shot a few different choke constrictions, saw which one gave us the densest pattern, which it actually turned out, I believe, to be a modified. Hmm. Uh, when we shot full at long distances like that, we got really blown out patterns. Interesting. And uh, that also, by putting the balloons out, tells us like how much drop we have. So we would find a spot in the distance and say, hey, I'm going to hold on this tree and let's see where the shot comes down and breaks the balloons. And that gives us some reference point to go out and get started. Like, hey, we're experiencing this much drop over 180 yards. So if the clay goes up, we're going to throw it straight up. We're going to wait for it to crest. And when it stops, that's going to give us the least amount of movement. Now, it only stops for a small fraction of a second. Then it's dropping, right? Yeah. So can I shoot taking my drop into account and get the, the shot to match the drop of the clay? Yeah. Oh, that's, that makes sense. Yes, yes, it does. And I guess what I appreciate most about it is, it's it's like a lot of things in life. The the end, like what you actually are accomplishing, breaking this target at extreme distances, sounds amazing. But when you break it down, it it's really just a a, a series of little incremental things that you did to sort of gain information. And it's a process, right? And that and that's just it. Like you get to the top of the mountain, you look down, you can't believe how far you came, but really it was a it was one step at a time, and that's how you achieve big things in life, which I know you'll appreciate, Steve. Yeah, no, that's you're right on, brother. Yeah, that's that's super cool. Well, all right, so so how can we how can we take this and educate upland bird hunters that maybe want to be a little bit better at shotgun shooting in being more target focused. You know, I got to shoot some clays last week, which was really fun because as I've talked about many times, I have shot some clays over my life. I've done, I've done a lot of bird hunting, but I've, I've never done anything serious as far as like competition shooting or anything like that. And I, I feel I have a lot of room to improve in shotgun shooting. And it was, it was fun to go out and shoot with you and you, you obviously have a good eye for stuff and you were kind of helping uh, myself and Christine sort of work through some targets and just breaking them down. And like, there's so many, there's, there seems to be so many of these little pitfalls in shotgun shooting or clay targets specifically, like so many optical illusions and, and just weird things that happen where like there was this one target 
that I could not break it. It was a pretty kind of simple rising target going away and it didn't seem very complex, but I kept, I I kept shooting and it wasn't breaking and you were kind of watching me from behind and you noticed that I was basically just going up to a spot and stopping my gun because I think the target kind of rose to a spot and then crested and then began to fall. And so I was just kind of going to that spot and shooting and what was probably happening is, is I was shooting underneath it because I was stopping my gun and you kind of pointed that out to me. And then the next shot, I just kind of made this conscious effort to follow through and sure enough, the target broke. And it's just, it's just so crazy that, that there's those little things that you just subconsciously don't realize or these little optical illusions that can trip you up. So how do we do better at that, Steve? Yeah. Well, I think you pointed out the fact that Shotgun shooting is really simple principles Yeah, in concept, but can be very difficult to apply. One, if you don't know the concepts, and two, if you're, you're not picking up visually uh, what's actually going on. Yep. Um, so like when I started shooting, I was terrible, man. I, I think I shot two out of 25 from a hand thrower. Like I didn't know the principles. Mm. I was just picking up, trying to point at the clay and shoot it, right? But you learn these little principles over time. And then practice and repetition, obviously, and, and we improve. And I, I never claim to have it figured out. Uh, there's so many different disciplines with clay shooting and wing shooting, and I'm always learning and trying to learn from others. Uh, but I just try to share, you know, here's what I know, and I'm just trying to share and help other people that maybe don't have the knowledge level that I do get a little bit better. Um, but, yeah, like in your example of, of that target presentation, it took me shooting it to really visually pick up on what was mm-hmm. going on, and then I realized – this target's a little visually deceptive because it looks like it's stopping. But if you don't 100% have the timing right, you're going to miss it. So if you approach that bird just a little bit differently and keep moving as you approach it, all of a sudden it's a simple target. Like you can say, Nick, that wasn't a hard target, but because your brain and your visuals cues wasn't matching up Mm -hmm. with what was going on, uh, it's really easy to miss at the same time. Yeah, that that was it. Was cool watching you because like we were we would sort of sit and talk. We would watch the targets and and sort of talk about them a little bit. But like you could tell, like once you got in the in the stand and shot it, it it's like then you would you would walk out of there and kind of you're like you you had not that you had everything figured out, but you really you really got a feel for the target by getting in there and shooting it. So I that was interesting that you that you pointed that out, but. It's also interesting to me, like there's a time and a place for thinking, like maybe when you're when you're watching a target, maybe you step up to it and you think about, okay, what is this target? What is it doing? But then there's this fine line of when you are actually shooting the gun, you, you don't really want to be thinking in your analytical mind. It's, it's about focus and subconscious, right? So it's like, how do we blend those two together in a, the appropriate way? Yeah, and and that's a challenge because when these concepts are new, it does require thought. And even before I go up and I'm shooting a sporting clay course, I'm thinking about how am I going to approach this target? Where's my kind of where's my break area? Where am I going to pull my gun back to? What level should I have my gun at to minimize gun movement? Like I am processing, but then once I'm ready and I call pull, we want to kind of turn the brain off and and just let us respond naturally, picking up on those visual cues. But then when you miss, that's when it gets challenging because then you want to think more. Yeah. Well, how am I missing? What am I missing? And those things can be really hard to self-diagnose by yourself. But a simple observer that's knowledgeable and seen a lot of shots can often give you the feedback, like how I was helping you, Nick. Like, you know how to shoot well. You, you did everything well, but you miss targets. I miss targets. 
having that feedback from someone else on what they saw yeah. is, is really valuable. And what I would just encourage people to do, no matter kind of where you're at in your, in your shooting life uh, with experience level, is like I'm putting out videos on a very regular basis summer on just different elements of shotgun shooting. And, and I think it's highly beneficial for people that have been hunting their whole life haven't thought about some of these simple concepts. Yep. And I, I just worked with a group last night. They were all hunters, but they were missing a lot of principles to good, good shooting, right? Because they just never been, they weren't aware. Yeah. And that's where it all starts with just a level of awareness, understanding the concept, then you can practice applying it and you can improve. Yep. Yeah, I do think that's it's somewhat common, maybe specifically in a place like like kind of where you and I grew up, and maybe you start not that you started hunting as young as I did, but it's just like you kind of get started, and you're not starting by going to a a shot. You know, you do your firearm safety that kind of thing, but you're not going and taking wing shooting instruction from a young age. You just kind of pick up the shotgun and you start shooting it, and you kind of you figure some things out, but if you, if you never learn those fundamental concepts, um, you can be missing a lot. And so that's where, you know, today, 2023, it's pretty cool to have a lot of these content channels available where you can really niche down and get into shotgun shooting or upland bird hunting or all this, you know, all the reasons that somebody might be listening to this podcast. You can really get selective as far as like what you want to slice and dice and get into and and shotgun shooting is seeing a big i would say a big uh wave of really cool stuff based on youtube being a really accessible and a really great platform for visually showing a lot of that stuff yeah we live in a pretty cool era when you think about it now don't get me wrong i could complain about all sorts of things in our culture that i'm not a fan of but just thinking about our access to information Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you can listen to podcasts, you can listen to people with much more experience, no matter what topic you're looking for. And you can learn and grow from your car by listening to these conversations. Like you want to create a successful business. You can listen to to successful business people. Like you're sitting in on a lunch conversation. Mm -hmm. Imagine just, I mean, being in that scenario and that's what you're doing from the car, uh, YouTube videos that you can learn a lot. Uh, of course, I always believe in hands-on coaching. You can coach yourself, learn a lot, but actually having someone to help you implement those things are huge. And uh, I want to jump back to the point you made, Nick, about a lot of people just pick up a shotgun. They start hunting. You know, their their dads, their moms don't necessarily coach them or teach them because they don't even know a lot of the principles because they were just handed a shotgun, started hunting. And it, I kind of equate it to this. I just thought of this as we were talking. Like, imagine going into a weight room. Yes, you can squat that that bar with the weights on it. You can absolutely do that without coaching. But guess what? When a coach comes in, he's going to be like, this, this form is not good. You're going to end up hurting your back. You're not going to be able to maximize strength. Um, all the different weightlifting techniques and the different moves. Yeah, we can do them, but we're going to do them very poorly without awareness of proper technique. Mm. Yep. Yep. No doubt. And you know, the other thing that I'm kind of thinking about this, as you say that too, is like when you go hunting, shooting the shotgun is a component to upland bird hunting, but it's not the entire thing. So if you just go out there, you know, you're trying to learn about the birds, you're trying to learn about the habitat, you're trying to hunt, you're trying to do all all these things at the same time. So what I, what I have found really valuable, really throughout me doing this podcast and and in, in times like the off season, I, you sort of go back and isolate some of those components, whether it's habitat or bird behavior, or bird dogs or shotguns and kind of dive deeper into those individual components so that when fall comes back around, we can be better at, at it while we're out there doing what we love to do, which is, which is bird hunt. 
Well, and for me, that's half of the fun. Yeah. You know, no no matter what kind of hunting I'm doing now, it's a little easier in big game because of the pre-scouting, putting out trail cameras, getting stands prepped, planting food plots. Like there can be a little bit more that goes into big game. Uh, But I think the same is true with upland hunting, like learning how to e-scout, working with dogs. Like this is the preparation piece that like you get excited about because it's giving you hope of a new season and and doing things a little bit different better and having new adventures and for me sometimes i'm let down when i go hunting especially big game because it's like i've been so excited now i'm sitting in the stand and the preparation was just as fun or more fun than actually sometimes getting out but that's different because that's big game and you're sitting in a stand for 10 hours and yeah uh, alone with your thoughts which is scary sometimes yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I know you, you, you obviously, you got started doing some waterfowl hunting. I know you've done a little bit of everything you got. What kind of dogs do you have, Steve? I have some Kleiner Munsterlanders. Nice. How'd you get into that? Um, there was this event called Game Fair in Anoka and I was performing at it. And before uh, my show, the Gould Brothers show, they did a doggy parade. So the different kennels and breeders and stuff that were there would come up and represent their breed. And then, you know, uh, Ron Shero would ask him, hey, what kind of dog do you have here? Tell me a little bit about it. And this guy comes up and he's got this Klein Munsterlander or small Munsterlander. Uh, he says, a German versatile breed. They're very good at tracking. They point. They're good for upland, waterfowl, uh, tracking deer, very friendly to the family. Um, and I was just like, wow, that does a little bit of everything. That's kind of me. I like to do a little bit of everything. And so the more I thought about this dog, I eventually connected with this guy. Um, Jim Juleson was his name. He's the president of the KLM group, Klein mm. Munsterlander group in North America, which is a subchapter of the German organization. And I connected with him and I just knew like this, this had to be my next dog. And I've had uh, several since then. Um, and it, it's been a whole new world. Man, I tell you, those Germans are very specific about uh, their breed regulation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what were your, were your visions of getting that dog kind of, like you said, kind of doing a little bit of everything, maybe a little waterfowl, a little upland and maybe some blood tracking. Have you done a little bit of all those things? Yeah. I've, I've dabbled in all of them with the dogs and I gotta be honest with you, Nick, the more I've got into the living of live shows mm. and making videos, like hunting has actually gotten less, which yeah. is a little bit sad at the same time, like I'm incredibly grateful that I get to do the stuff that I do. Sure. Um, then you mix in kids and, and I need to stop making excuses and hunt a little bit more, which I think every, every hunter says everywhere. Um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I, I enjoy everything, but I'm also considering, you know, maybe changing my approach to dogs. Uh, I've had a lot of good conversations. I, uh, was up visiting with Jerry at Pine Ridge and then I visited with, Ben from Onyx, yeah. and uh, it was interesting to hear what Ben had to say because he had Drots before, you yep. know, another German dog, and he kind of got tired of the versatility a little bit uh, because the downside of versatility means you're hunting pheasants, but you're also hunting ra- raccoons, skunks, porcupines, deer, um, anything with fur or feathers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and I think he said he now has a english setter he's yeah he's got he's got a pointer and he now has a yeah a really young setter pup as well yep so maybe you could educate me 
Uh, I did look up a setter. What's the difference between an English setter and an English pointer? Oh man, putting me on the spot. Well, uh, oh. <laughs> one's got one's got one's got shorter hair. <laughs> English. You're English. like, wait a second. I, I'm interviewing you, Steve. You yeah. don't ask me questions. Yeah, exactly. I've I've got setters. Everybody knows that. Um, they're. I mean, they have some similarities. They obviously separated in the gene pool um, a long time ago, but they are sort of in the world of upland hunting setters and pointers are often grouped, uh, in the, uh, people would call like you might separate and call them pointing dogs where you would call the versatile dog, put the versatile dogs in a different category where English setters and pointers are kind of, uh, purely pointing dogs, I guess, but, um, you can slice and dice it a lot of different ways, but, uh, setters and pointers are, are often grouped together. Yeah, I, I like the look of the setter mm. a lot more than the pointer. Uh, I, there's something about that longer hair. They just they look so stately yep. in my mind. Yep. Yeah, and that's that. I get that certainly drew me to setters. Um, I I grew growing up. I always loved German short hair pointers. I still do. Uh, I still kind of envision them as like sort of the uh, uh, hunting dog. Like when that when that comes to mind, I think of German short hair pointers a lot. But I, of course, I love my English setters and I sort of fell into them as, as a grouse hunter. And, um, I just, I kind of, they fit it in my little ethos of, of what I consider upland bird hunting. And, uh, I love it. So I could, I could give you a, pour you a setter to Kool-Aid all, all day long, Steve. Well, we might have to have a side conversation about that. Um, I'm, I'm interested. I, I do love the versatility of the German dogs, but here's how I explain it. Like a utility player in baseball, right? They're going to be good at a lot of things, mm. but they're not necessarily going to be stand out great in one area so that they point naturally pretty well but they're not going to be a rock solid pointer like your english setter right they, they they retrieve they they can be taught to retrieve very well some of them retrieve naturally very well um but they're not going to retrieve like a retriever like a lab uh that that will do it all day long they'll retrieve because you want them to retrieve um tracking tracking is probably their highlight incredibly strong noses um, and that's, that's a pro and a con because they will track anything and everything while you're hunting, right? You're not on bird scent. Well, guess what? They're going to pick up a track of something and they're going to start looking for it. So they get distracted by the pursuit of game. And it's not necessarily the game you're hunting at the moment. Although I do got to say, Nick, if I get the opportunity to take out, uh, three raccoons while I'm hunting pheasants because they're, they're nest robbers, uh, they'll steal pheasant eggs and, and eat them. Uh, I'm happy to take out some raccoons while I'm at it, but those are some pretty vicious encounters. Yeah, I have. Uh, yeah, I've never experienced any with my dogs, but uh, I I know them all too well. Uh, somebody out there somewhere, Steve, is screaming at their windshield that their versatile dog does all of those things and does it better than any other dog. But that's uh, that's the beauty of the dog world, Steve. <laughs> yeah, and you know, there's not one right way to slice it. I think people can get. Uh, th their thoughts on dogs can be like their vehicles. Yes. Oh, you drive a Ford? Well, Chevy's the only way to go. You know, and it's like, uh, at the end of the day, like, do you enjoy the vehicle? Does it work for you? Um, there's not a, a right or a wrong way, but if we're open to learning and being educated, I think we make best decisions we can. And yeah. that's my two cents. Well said, well said. I did want to ask you, we're, we're getting close here to wrapping up, but I know we talked about this briefly and we'll kind of tease folks. They can go check out some of the videos on your channel, but you had done a couple things recently on eye dominance and shooting with both eyes open. So without spoiling the videos, not that we can here on this audio podcast, there's plenty to see. What have you learned recently about eye dominance and 
shooting with one eye closed and or both eyes open when it comes to shotguns? Yeah. Well, I always start with shotgunning is a hand-eye coordination sport, right? Our hands and our eyes work together. And like we talked about earlier, you're picking up visual cues. What's the best way to pick up visual cues, depth perception, speed, angle of travel? Mm. Simple. Both eyes open, focus on the target. You think about any sport that people have played, either present or in the past, when you're throwing a football to a receiver, you're looking at the receiver. You're not throwing the football to the receiver, but you're looking at the receiver and throwing where they're going to end up. Mm. You're focused on the receiver. When you're hitting a baseball or catching a baseball, what do they always say? Keep your eye on the ball. Ball. Yeah. Because you don't need to look at your hands. You don't need to look at your bat. You're not aiming your bat. Your hands are simply swinging the bat to where you are looking. That's called hand-eye coordination. And so I always like to bring up that concept. Uh, I mean, you can think about any sport, basketball, yep. where are you looking? You're looking at the hoop. Don't look at your hands. Your hands will go where they need to go if you're looking in the right spot. That's what shotgunning is. First, getting your eyes in the right spot. But then when we're talking about eye dominance, the, the, the difference between playing a lot of these sports and shooting a shotgun is you are choosing a side, right? You're either going to shoot on your left side or on your right side, which means you are now choosing an eye. And the problem is the eye is the rear sight. So if we have a dominant eye that prefers visual data over our other eye, that's what dominance is, our brain preferring visual data of one eye over the other, and you put the gun on your non-dominant side, your rear sight is now several inches off, right? And your hand-eye coordination isn't going to work the same. Can you shoot like that? Yes. Can you hit clays and birds? Yes. Can you adapt? You can. I will start with saying that. So people that are listening like, oh, I'm right I'm left eye dominant, but I shoot right handed and I shoot birds. Yes, and you there's can do a it. lot Absolutely. of there's a lot of people like that. Yep. Yeah. And so if it's working for you and you're fine with it, great. But here's what I say. If you want to get better, shooting on your dominant eye side is ideal. Okay, you've been doing this for 30 years. You're probably not going to change. I get that. Mm-hmm. No big deal. But there are things you can do to compensate. A little bit of masking tape on the off eye. If that's your dominant eye, if your left eye is your dominant eye and you're shooting right-handed, put a little scotch tape over your glasses. It will force your right eye to take over. Now, here's the resistance to that. Well, I tried that. I took five shots and I missed every one. Yes, you did because you're retraining your brain. Mm-hmm. And, but, but our brains are really good at adapting to new visual data if we do it consistently. For example, there was a study where they put these glasses on people and it really skewed their vision. It was incredibly funny to watch because they'd go down to tie their shoes and they would miss their feet because their brains were being lied to about where the, where the physical, what the physical world was, yeah, yeah. right? They weren't seeing it accurately, but they wore those for like a week and they got really adept at the visual cues. Their brain patched it together and it made it the what, reality, yeah. even though it wasn't seeing it accurately. Then they took the glasses off and then now they have their actual vision. It's not being skewed. And because their brains had put it together, they were actually missing tying their shoes with their natural vision. Yeah. And so what I always tell people is, do you walk around this world with two eyes or one eye? Well, if you have two eyes, do you walk around with two eyes or one eye? Well, I walk around with two eyes. Great. Then that's how you should be shooting in an ideal world because that's how your brain knows how to put together visual data. And it's 100% accurate. This stuff is studied. They've shown that people that lose one eye uh, suffer losses of of motor skills because they don't judge depth and speed and those things nearly as well and i think over time they their body compensates yeah but that's because they're seeing the world with one eye all the time at that point 
And so I always advise two eyes, shoot on your dominant eye side if you can. Uh, and that's only for people that want to get the most out of their shooting experiences. If you're content with what you're doing now, I, you know, I miss some birds, but no big deal. I miss birds too, by the way, and I, I'm right. preaching this stuff. <laughs> but it's, it's all about your objective. You know, do you want to get better? Do you want to try to improve, learn something new? Great. Um, but last thing I'll say is if you're left eye dominant, I would just tell you straight up, learn to shoot left-handed. All your left hand is doing is pulling the trigger. Your right hand's driving the gun. So why mm -hmm. are you worried about your, your dominant hand? Right? People say, well, it's awkward. Yeah, because you've never done it before. Right. Go give it a practice, few practice sessions and you'll be hitting birds and they'll feel natural. Yeah. Guaranteed. No doubt. And we've, we've likely all done things like that where you, you know, like you try to swing a baseball bat or a golf club or a hockey stick. The wrong, it feels so weird because you're, it's like you said there, and I'm blanking on a term, but I heard it recently. Um, definitely way too complex of a subject for us to get into on this show, but your, your brain's ability to adapt and sort of, uh, fire those neurons, you know, things feel really, really awkward. But I think if you, oftentimes when you're forced to, to do that, you realize how quickly you can change and develop new pathways, new neural pathways and, and do things physically that you, that you didn't think were possible. So, uh, I do think that recommendation comes up quite a bit. Like if you discover your left eye dominant, uh, if you're willing to switch hands, it's, uh, it's usually, uh, recommended by gun fitters and wing shooting instructors, but I, I haven't had to do it myself and I know I would feel just as uncomfortable trying to do it. So I don't blame anybody that doesn't want to. Uh, you wanted to say the word neuroplasticity, didn't yes. you? Yes. Well, that was on my mind. There's a different. Uh, I was. I think I was listening to something recently. Something you said brought it up. It's. It's the brain very quickly acclimates to things like sounds. Like if you're sitting next to a waterfall, a waterfall that that constant noise in the background. Your brain doesn't take very long for your brain to kind of tune that out. And then if you leave that place and go somewhere else. That's when you have that sort of sensation where you feel like you can still hear the waterfall because your brain was effectively canceling that out while you were sitting there. I don't know if that's neuroplasticity, but um, it's it's in the same uh, same field a little bit. Oh yeah, that's fascinating. Interesting. Yeah, and I I, I quickly when I heard that I quickly related that to when I go in uh, when it's October and I spend the entire day in the grouse woods following my dogs with their little bell ringing. When I lie down at night, put my head on the pillow, I <laughs> oftentimes close my eyes and I keep hearing that bell going, which I don't, I don't actually mind in that situation. Yeah. I think we've all had those where it's like been a long day of something repetitive mm -hmm. and then you're trying to, trying to sleep and you're, you're hearing the sounds or it's replaying in your, in your brain. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Oh man, I appreciate you joining us on the Birdshot podcast, Steve. There, there was, a, there's a ton more we could talk about. I'm glad I got a chance to spend some time with you and get to know you, and we'll certainly keep you in the loop as things progress on the Up and Gun Company side of things. And you've got a couple of videos up, a great video with Del Whitman on shotgun fitting. If folks haven't seen that, they should check it out. We also did kind of a little intro video to Upland Gun Company and showed off some of the different models. And there's more stuff in the works, but you've got. A ton of stuff on YouTube. Where uh, is that the best place you, you send people? I know you got a website as well, but where should people go to find more of the work that you do, Steve? Yeah, well, the website's targetfocused.life. You can find all the videos there. Um, you can find more information about booking live exhibitions, blog posts, all sorts of stuff there. But of course, YouTube is another easy place, uh, obviously on Instagram and Facebook, uh, because I guess you have to be there, but I don't play there too much, just to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm tired of the censorship of, and, and the canceling of our 
values. Yeah, yeah. You got anything coming up lo- locally? We do have a lot of listeners in in Minnesota, and uh, I know you got some events on the calendar. Any any place coming up where folks might get a chance to come out and see uh, see a show or a seminar? Oh, you're going to put me on the spot now. So, <laughs> we can always uh, just point them to the website, but yeah, I am. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know the dates offhand. I know I'm doing an event in uh, Perm, Minnesota. And uh, I think that's, yeah, like August 30th or 31st. Okay. And I'm not even 100% sure if it's open to the public, but that, uh, my wife does get all that stuff posted to the website at targetfocus.life. So we try to keep that up to date. Nice. So if you're looking for an event that I will be at probably performing live exhibitions. Sometimes I speak at events. Um, that would be probably the best place to get that info. Awesome. All right. The target focus life website. I will link that in the show notes for sure. And like I mentioned before, there's a, there's a lot of great stuff for folks to go check out. So please do that. Steve, thank you so much for, for taking some time and, and chatting with us on the, with us on the bird chat podcast. This was a blast, man. And I look forward to doing it again sometime. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. Keep up the great work, brother. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.